Welcome back to Career Compass, a podcast from SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, and the SHRM Foundation. Career Compass prepares future leaders today for better workplaces tomorrow. As the voice of all things work, SHRM supports students and emerging professionals with advice, information, and resources for every step of your career. Designed for the student and emerging professional, Career Compass delivers timely, relevant, and critical conversations about work to help you succeed in your career journey. Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Vernon Williams. And my name is Chrissy Parola. During this episode, we are going to talk all about student debt. We'll cover everything from how student debt occurs to ways to avoid going further into debt, something I know I personally could use some help with. And to help tackle this topic, we will be joined by Aaron Smith, the co-founder of Savvy, a company whose mission is to help the middle class prosper by tackling the student debt crisis. With that being said, let's get started. So, Christy, I know you went to an in-state college, which in itself was probably relatively smart, even though I know private schools as well are starting to give a lot more discounts to attract students. But my question for you is, did the amount of debt factor into your decision on where you wanted to attend school or what role did finances play in your choice of, of, of which school to go to? Sure. So at the time, being 19, I think finances were the least or the smallest part of the pie when considering where I was going to go to school. And I was also going to all schools that were within my residential state. So they were, you know, semi cheaper compared to looking out of state. But I also grew up in Pennsylvania where the state schools are some of the most expensive state schools. Uh, So it was more just about the emotional decision of wanting to go to a school where my dad went to school or my mom went to school. And looking back, I definitely think I would have paid more attention to the financial piece of it. Uh, as I'm still trying to finish my bachelor's after four years still attending school, I've definitely racked up my fair amount of student debt. And that's what's keeping me from wanting to finish my degree faster because I need to make sure I have the money to be able to pay for these loans because I do not want to have to go into more debt to finish my degree. So definitely not then as much, but is more and more a decision now as I'm trying to further my education. Um, how about you, Vernon? What role did it play for you? I know you went to uh, a few different schools for a few different degrees, and I hope this isn't too... Nothing too personal, Christy. And I, I think you bring up a really good point kind of of that like catch 22, like you 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 want to make a whole lot of money in your career, but you kind of need this degree in a lot of cases to get to some of those, you know, to those upper level jobs, which cost money. Uh, so it, it's I, you're, you're spot on kind of with your analysis of, of, of the, the college experience in terms of the finance portion. For me, it was a little bit different. I, I had the good fortune that my, my dad was a guidance counselor, uh, a high school guidance counselor. So we talked about finance and what my family could afford, I think, even before I got to high school. Uh, and so it, it was an easy decision for me to attend a, a state school. Uh, and I, I vividly remember uh, wanting an internship to you know earn a little bit of money and also get some experience after my first year of, of college. And I worked every single day, all summer long. I think I was making $6 an hour, but I was driving 50 minutes one way into Baltimore. Uh, and it, it was a great experience. Loved the the sole proprietorship uh, for information technology I was working for. Uh, but when I got back to school and saw the bill going into my sophomore year, um, <laughs> every single dime went into that bill. And I remember walking across campus with 
again, state school a while ago, $3,000 in cash in my pocket, hoping I don't get robbed. And I was like, I will never do this again. <laughs> uh, so following kind of that experience, I said, let me, let me get a, a job on campus. I became a resident assistant to help kind of cut down on some of the expenses. Uh, and I had an academic, academic scholarship to help kind of on the tuition and fee side of things. So I was able to finish uh, undergrad with, with, uh, with no debt. I did incur a little bit uh, in grad school. And so I, I'll happy, happily share a little bit more about that maybe in, in kind of our, our Q&A session with our, our guest uh, who I, I know. And so let's, let's start transitioning to, to that segment of what we're going to talk about. Sure. Because this, this is somebody who is, is kind of self-proclaiming or self-letting us know that they too have a, a substantial amount of student loan debt. So this is somebody who's not only kind of the, the expert, but also kind of the client as well, if you will. <laughs> so uh, Aaron Smith is, is a longtime student loan expert and advocate with over a decade of experience in the intersection between higher education and financial technology. Aaron co-founded and served as the original executive director of Young Invincibles, one of the largest and most impactful youth organizations and policy nonprofits in the country, with a focus on engaging 18 to 34-year-olds. Aaron started YI in 2019 while still a student at Georgetown Law School, which is where he tells us the substantial student debt came from. Through his work at YI, Aaron worked with the Department of Education, the White House, and Congress to make concrete fixes to higher education funding and the student loan process. Aaron has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, and now Sherm's Career Compass. Aaron, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. So let me get things kind of kicked off uh, with some, some context or a background question. Tell us a little bit more about why loans are, are here in the first place and why you believe the student debt is at a crisis point. Sure. So you know, to provide a little context, we're at about $1.7 trillion in student loans. It's bigger than credit card debt, which is, you know, if you think about how much attention is paid on credit cards, it's just a massive amount of debt. Over 90% of that debt is held by the federal government. So it's Unlike other types of loans, it's the, the government is the primary lender. And the big driver is, is the cost of college. The cost of college is going up faster than almost anything else in this country. You know, you hear about the rising cost of healthcare. It's it's like at that level of uh, acceleration in terms of the cost of college. And the end result of that is that people are taking on more and more debt. You know, you used to be able to go to a public university, either four-year or two-year, for uh, at almost no cost. Our parents' generation, you could you could go to uh, a CUNY in New York or uh, a California State School at, at at no cost, and that has really changed. Even the state schools now are are becoming expensive, and in private schools. The increase we've seen there has been enormous. So that's why we're seeing, you know, a rise in, in debt across all different sort of levels and in, of incomes and education. So you see, obviously, I, you know, I went to law school and that's where we see some of the fastest growth in student loan debt. That's where you see that kind of six figure student loan debt amounts often coming from grad school. But we also see increasing student debt at lower income levels and Unfortunately, while there's a lot of attention paid to the people with the really high debt levels, it's often people with 
you know, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 in debt who are most at, at risk of falling behind on their loans. So it's amazing. I know how I got into where I'm at with my student debt. <laughs> and some of it was just me not making great decisions, not knowing where I was going to go, not knowing what I wanted to do and changing my major a million times. So maybe this is going to contribute to the next question I'm going to ask. But according to the U.S. News, the average total student debt among recent college graduates who borrowed to pay for school exceeded $30,000. How is it possible for so many students to amass a debt of $30,000 or more in a lot of cases, as you were just mentioning? You know, it comes down to the cost of college. Um, Putting my old Young Invincibles hat on, you know, states have disinvested in higher education, which has made tuition at public schools increase. Things like the Pell Grant, which are supposed to provide aid to lower income students, have not kept up with the cost of college. And so you have got you got to make up that difference. And people still believe in the value of college. They, they think it's it's what it takes to get them ahead. And I it, largely they're right. Um, it's just if you're going to make up that difference, you're going to have to do it via loans. And what we see is that people are still you know, getting smarter about that, those loan decisions, you know, there you hear people going to a two year and then transferring into a four year. That's one way of sort of keeping the costs down. Um, I think awareness around student loan debt is increasing both among students and parents and just what it means for your future. I, I think the point was made earlier. This is, this is probably the, the first big financial decision that you will make in your life. And you're, being asked to understand something very complicated that that is unlike anything else you've understood before, um, so it's not shocking to me that people, you know, take on more debt than than um, might make sense or might not fully understand the implications of it. We we did some surveys of current students. Vast majority of current students do not know if they have federal or private loans. For example, they don't know what their monthly payment is going to be when they leave school. And it, it, it dawns on you really quick, the impact when you leave school and you're like, oh, wow, my student loan payment is about the same as my rent. And that's that, you know, it's typically about six months after you graduate is when you have to start repaying your loan. And that's when it really hits people, the, the sheer magnitude of the debt they have and how long it's going to take to repay it. Yeah. And you kind of hit the nail right on the head with that. Cause I, I mean, I just recently experienced that where my dad was like, all right, this is what you're going to owe. <laughs> Get ready. So I, I definitely can, can empathize with that situation. And then I want to swallow my pride a little bit because I know that you mentioned a Pell Grant and up until this week, I had no idea what that was. <laughs> Would you be able to kind of explain what a Pell Grant is, who's eligible and how students go about applying for the Pell Grant? Sure. So when you are considering going to college, um, you will fill out something called the FAFSA, which is a form that helps the government figure out basically what your your need is uh, based on your income. And if you are eligible and millions of people are eligible, uh, the government will give you grant funds, so not a loan, to help cover the cost of college. And Pell Grant is an incredibly important program in the, in the country and provides a pathway 
to a more affordable college education. But there are still so many young people who have never heard of the Pell Grant or who find it too complicated uh, to actually fill out the paperwork and um, they need information from their parents. And it's it, it could be a lot simpler. And there have been efforts to make it simpler, um, but it's still a really important program. And I know there are efforts to increase the size of the Pell Grant as well so that, again, people don't have to make up the difference uh, with student loans. That's a fantastic response. And, and thank you, Christy, for asking that Pell Grant question, because I, I think you're right, Aaron, that a lot of people don't know about resources, particularly kind of free resources, I guess, uh, that are that are there or available to, to help people, uh, which kind of is going to my question. And, and this is this comes from a place of for me working in higher education institutions, uh, specifically, I was working with military communities. And within the first couple of years, people would just come in and almost sign documents without kind of reading them or understanding them, as, as I think you were pointing out earlier. And then as, as time progressed, you start hearing a lot more questions coming like, what does this mean? How long do I have these benefits? What am I going to end up paying back? What's my out-of-pocket expenses? A lot of that sort of stuff. So my question is, when students and families receive their financial aid package from their school, what type of things should they be paying attention to? And what are some red flags? I think that they should look obviously very closely at what the estimated amount of debt is going to be. One of the things that I think people underestimate is the cost of living for college can be substantial. If you're getting housing, your books, all the things that allow you to go to college, not just the tuition, that's a huge source of cost and debt for folks. And so understanding how you are going to cover those costs and if it means that you have to find sort of savings, um, you know, being really thoughtful about that piece of it, I think is I think is really important. And then, yeah, it's, it's it comes down to that mix of grant aid versus uh, versus loans. Generally speaking, federal student loans are better than private student loans. Uh, not always, but uh, federal student loans come with a lot of protections. So. Um, you become disabled if you lose your job. Um, you can you can be you can be eligible for a zero dollar payment. Um, you can be eligible for programs that will forgive your income, your uh, student debt, if you have a certain occupation, like you're a teacher, for example. Those are not available if you take on private loans. So sometimes people have to take on private loans because the federal loans doesn't cover everything that they're trying to do. But that's another thing just to look at is how much you're eligible for in terms of the federal loans. And I'm glad you touched on on loans, Aaron, because this is where I was saying in, in kind of the earlier comments that in grad school, I, I did have to take out some loans because uh, I was planning to study abroad. Uh, and as you mentioned, it, it was six months to the day. So I, I, you know, I don't remember exactly what day I graduated on, but I remember receiving my notice in the mail six months to the day after graduation that said, congratulations on your accomplishments. Your payments start. It was like, how did they know? Um, and so uh, we, we touched on this a little bit in our previous episode uh, around financial literacy about student loans uh, and subsidized and unsubsidized. Can you elaborate a little bit more on those terms and what's the difference between the two? Yeah, so subsidized for and I also took on grad grad school loans and so subsidized loans versus unsubsidized loans, grad plus loans, which maybe you took out is another term that people should be aware of. The subsidized versus unsubsidized is basically talking about whether you accrue interest 
while you're in school. So one of the nice things about being in college when you have debt is generally speaking, you don't have to make payments during your time in school. However, what people may be surprised to learn is that some types of loans, you'll actually be accruing interest while you're in school and you know studying and enjoying your time there. Uh, you'll come out with more debt than you that even than when you started. Subsidized loans uh, do more to, to cover that interest afterwards. Uh, there may be there are sometimes differences in terms of the interest rates, in terms of the repayment plans. And uh, graduate plus loans is another category. They tend to have higher interest. Um, like my loans were over seven and a half percent. And many of these plans, people have no idea what they what they mean or these types of loans. And this is one of the things that Savvy does is we help with our software people uh, identify what kind of loans they have and then what that means in terms of their repayment plans that, that are available to them. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the 7% because I think some of these numbers are, as you mentioned, confusing to people. Uh, and, you know, it, it's hard to keep them straight, even for me and somebody who's not necessarily in that that role anymore, because I'm looking at what my auto loan would be. I'm looking at my house loan. I'm looking at my car loan. I'm looking at my, my bank loan. And it's like, oh, my gosh, what what is it, you know, that, that I should be shooting for? So uh, kind of last sort of questions before I kick things back over to, to Christy. Can you give us a sense of what a good student you know, interest rate or loan rate is, uh, and if you if you know, like, is there a difference between uh, kind of the the private sector and the public sector for what these loans might be or what they might cost? Uh, yeah. So the the federal government sets the interest rates on federal loans. So, um, for example, the current interest rate for a direct unsubsidized loan for an undergrad is two point seven five percent. That's very. That's a very good interest rate uh, for graduate students. It's higher. It's four point three percent. And again, that's set by the federal government. Um, it can change over time, but generally speaking, it's a fixed rate. So once you take on that loan, you're going to have a two point seven five percent interest rate for the rest of the time. Grad plus, which is the other one I mentioned, another federal loan. Those tend to have much higher interest rates, like over seven percent. Private loans will typically have a somewhat higher interest rate. I mean, we've see, we see private loans with anywhere from 5% to over 10%. Private loans often have a co-signer, so they may want your parent to sign on to the loan with you. And again, you, it, it, it's, it's, it's complicated. There may be situations where you can get a lower interest rate with one kind of loan, but the protections and benefits of the government loan may be really important as well. So that's, you know, people just really have to do their homework before they they take on this debt. Sure. So when you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay and what's your strategy afterwards, do you know of any repayment plans or income driven repayment plans? And what, what should somebody go to expect when trying to figure out what's the best strategy for them? Yeah. So that's it's really important for people to understand that when you come out of school, you're assigned a servicer. So this could be a Navient uh, or Fed loan servicing, and they're the ones who are going to expect you to pay them every month. And your standard plan is going to be a 10-year repayment plan. So they're going to take your loan, they're going to apply the interest, and you're going to have a set payment over 10 years. And then after that 10 years, you'll have paid off your loan. 
the government offers programs that allow you to limit your monthly payment based on your income. So as, a, as an example, let's say I come out of college and I don't have a job right away. So I have zero income. Now my normal payment, I, I have $50,000 of student loans and my normal payment would be about $1,000 a month. I could sign up for an income-driven plan and lower my payment as low as $0 a month because my income is zero. And when I sign up, that, that payment will be good for one year. So for one year, I have a $0 payment. Now that's not free money. I mean, you, you will have to pay back that loan. You may accrue interest. The big advantage of income-based plans is the government will actually subsidize some of that interest for you. So it's not, it's not quite the same as just extending the loan, but there are trade-offs there. And so for people who, uh, whose income goes down or ha they're having trouble making their payments generally or on other things, income-based repayment is a huge, think of it almost like insurance policy to, to make sure that you are always able to find a payment that you can afford. So there are actually lots of different types of income-driven repayment plans. There's plans called ICR and repay and pay. And again, Savvy helps you sort of sort through all those and figure out which plan you're even eligible for, which plan uh, makes the most sense for you. But it is, it is complicated. And I would add most of those programs require you to actually enroll every year. So uh, when I first came out of school, I had to fill out that paperwork by hand and then fax it in to my servicer. And uh, I just remember feeling like this is so old school. I, I don't have to fax <laughs> anything. And uh, I got to fax my student loan paperwork. And then you, I would keep a big file folder of all my student loan papers. And then the next year I try to remember where it was so I could, you know, file again. But about half of people actually fail to recertify, put in their paperwork every year. So they, they end up dropping out of the program, which means their payments go back up. So it, it, the enrollment process as well is extremely difficult and can be frustrating for people. And again, it's one of the reasons why we started Savvy. Sure. And I know you mentioned earlier the difference of how you accrue interest in if this, these subsidy plans. But I think, and this is something I learned the hard way just recently, is understanding the difference between paying on the principal of the loan if you're going to make an extra payment versus paying on the interest and not understanding that you're really doing one over the other. Can you, I mean, I can obviously probably further explain it, but probably not as poetically <laughs> as you can. So I, if we could just kind of explain that for our listeners too, because I think nobody really explains the difference for you on that when you're coming into this. Yeah. So when you're making payments, Generally, you're making a combination of the principal, which means sort of the underlying loan amount, and the interest that accrues. So the, you know, 5% uh, whatever amount on top of that underlying loan amount. And people can pay down their loans faster, but it's important to make sure that your payments are sufficient to start paying down the principal. Because if you're just paying off the interest, for example, um, you're never sort of cutting away at that underlying student loan and you still will have that student loan, which is still able to accrue interest um, over time. So it is a complicated concept for people. A lot of people who, for whom they never, you know, they never took out a loan before. They ne and, and um, but understanding that 
you really need to have a plan so that you pay back both the principal and interest over the life of the loan so that that loan doesn't get away with you away from you and sometimes what we see is people for example, may go into get behind on their student loans or go into default on their student loans, and that interest starts to accrue. Um, and it can actually capitalize, meaning the interest can get put on top of your principal. So now you end up owing more even than when you started. Um, and there was some research, and this, this, this problem disproportionately hurts different communities. So there was some research that showed that African-American graduates with debt, for example, often owed more uh, on their student loans after five or 10 years after they graduated than when they graduated. Um, and that's exactly because of the problem you said, which is their interest is accruing and they're not paying it down fast enough and that the amount of the debt starts to balloon. Sure. So when we're coming into this time with COVID and the U.S. Department of Education has extended the pause in federal student loan payments, what does this mean and when will students need to restart making payments? And you know, what's the advantage of continuing your monthly payment now, even though the payments are paused? Yeah, so you're right. The federal government put a pause on student loan payments, federal student loan payments, since March of 2020. And that pause lasts until the end of September of this year. Uh, so I, for example, have not been making my student loan payments because because they've been paused and I'm not accruing any interest, which is one of the, the important things that they did means I, I don't have to make the payment and the interest doesn't keep building up. That will end. Millions of people are going to have to start repaying their student loans uh, this fall. And so we're, we're very concerned about people being aware of that shift and being ready to start repaying again. I think, I think there could be a lot of challenges uh, with that. Some people have decided to continue paying uh, down during the, the pandemic because, uh, as you sort of alluded to, it's a way to start to pay down the principal of your loan and actually get that loan amount lower while you're not accruing any interest. So if you can afford to make the payments, certainly that that can make sense. The vast majority of people are not making payments right now um, lot, for, for obvious reasons. If you don't have to, you can spend the money on other things. But, you know, there are there are um, advantages. Uh, the other thing we try to point out to people is let's say you lost your job or your hours got cut uh, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, again, these income-based repayment programs can be really important. So it means that if we, if you, if you put in an application, you can actually make sure that your, uh, for example, a zero-dollar payment gets extended even beyond that payment pause. If you're really worried about repay, starting repaying again in October, income-driven repayment is one approach that you can take to help get that payment lowered uh, when a lot of people are still, you know, suffering economically. That's really good to know. So sticking with that line of questioning, are there other federal laws or policies that students and emerging professionals should consider when it comes to student loans? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a type of programs that uh, student loan programs that provide forgiveness on your student loans, on your federal student loans. So one big one is called public service loan forgiveness. This is anyone who works for a nonprofit 501c3 uh, works for the government, like a teacher, works for, in a, oftentimes in nonprofit healthcare settings, like a social worker or a nurse, um, they might be eligible to have their federal loans forgiven after 10 years. 
um, which is a huge, huge program. And it means that any balance that's remaining after you make the 10 years of payments. So the way it works is you sign up for an income based repayment plan and you make the 10 years of payments while you're working for one of these eligible employers and you will have the remainder forgiven. So if you had $100,000 left over, you will have it forgiven tax-free. A hugely important benefit for people, particularly in the public sector. Uh, Savvy, we work with thousands of teachers, for example. There's also a program called Teacher Loan Forgiveness, which will forgive your student loans after only five years, although a smaller amount. But there's a lot of unique, specific student loan forgiveness programs that people do not know about. One of the things the government just did was if you are on an income-based repayment plan for a certain period of time, often 20 years, after that 20 years, the government plans will actually forgive the remainder of your loans. So similar to public service loan forgiveness, they will forgive it even if you work in a private sector. The downside traditionally has been you would have to pay taxes on that. So if you had $100,000 in forgiveness, you might have to pay taxes as if that was $100,000 in income, which is a big challenge for people. They just recently changed the law, however, so it's now tax-free. Nice. So even that, you know, even that form of forgiveness is now a much better deal for people. And that's really important for people, uh, for-profit companies uh, and people who generally might have lower or moderate incomes and might be on the income-based plan for a long time uh, as they can get that forgiveness in that way as well. There are other changes, you know, for, for employers, there was a new, um, brand new tax break. So employers can start to actually contribute toward your employees' student loans and it's tax free. Many employers are starting to do this where they say, I'll pay a hundred dollars a month to help you pay down your student loans. And now it's treated as tax free, uh, both for you and the employee. So that's a huge, huge new benefit. Um, last that tax break lasts for five years and, uh, employers are, are just starting to really expand, uh, that, that kind of benefit. And I'm sure that's a way to, to attract new talent uh, or, you know, better talent to organizations. If that's a benefit that you're offering to your employees, that, that sounds fantastic. Exactly. And then for traditionally employer benefits have not been as oriented toward younger workers, you know, and this is a kind of benefit that I think really appeals to um, young workers or just workers, period, with student debt. Um, and it's a real differentiator for the company, increases retention. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of value. But obviously, the tax the tax break makes a big difference for employers that are you know trying to figure out how it makes financial sense. So my my next question, Aaron, uh, is is one that is very near and dear to my heart as. Uh, as I started working, uh, I had an MBA, I'm 24 years old, but I was working at kind of an affluent college. And so the students were all driving like much nicer cars than the, the broke down <laughs> car that I was driving at the time. Uh, and so I, I then decided I was going to, so I'm still, I got to ball out, you know, I've, I've just graduated. I got to do something to, to show that I'm, I'm doing all right. And so I went to, to Best Buy to get a TV uh, and based on my income and my, my debt that I had at the time, my student loan debt that I had at the time, they would only offer me like 800 or 900 bucks of, of credit. And so I got the biggest, bulkiest TV that weighed like 700 pounds. <laughs> uh, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. Uh, so, so my question, how can student loans or how do student loans impact your credit score and your ability to borrow money for things like a house or a car? Or a big bulky TV. Or a big bulky TV. 
Yeah, or a McDonald's TV. I, I, it, it has a huge impact. Student loans for many people are one of their biggest forms of debt. You know, you think about credit card debt, car, auto loans. Student loans is bigger than all those. And many people, the, the, the big implications is if you fall behind on your student loans, if you get into default on your student loans, and a huge portion, like over 10% of student loan borrowers are behind on their student loans or in, in some kind of delinquent status, what that, that can have a direct negative impact on your credit score. Uh, you mentioned your sort of debt to income ratio. When a mortgage lender is looking at you for a house, and we see this increasingly, they're factoring in your student loan payments and that is taking a big, having a big impact on people's debt to income ratios. One of the interesting things that we've seen on the policy side is you can now, they change the rules. So you can now enroll in an income-based plan. So let's say your, your student loan payment goes from $1,000 a month down to $500 a month. They will actually start to take that into account and improve your debt to income ratio as a result. So you're, you're now your payments went up down $500, your debt to income ratio is gonna improve and you'll actually be more able to afford a house or more able to afford a bigger mortgage uh, as a result. So um, not only can it have an impact, getting smart on your student loans uh, can have a positive impact on your ability to, to buy a house, for example. So it's one of the really important reasons why people need to stay current on their student loans and stay on top of their student loans, because um, it can have a, a meaningful impact on credit. So kind of going into unable to pay your student loans, I'm hoping nobody has this issue, but if you ever happen to completely stop paying your student loans, what would you expect is going to happen if you're unable to continue making those payments? And what are you know, I've heard the terms deferments and forbearances. How do those factor in? So it's really important. It's really important to, to, to make your student loan payments. The government has a lot of, again, the government is the lender. Uh, so the government has a lot of ways to, to get that money. <laughs> I think you're being nice here. I think you're being polite. <laughs> <laughs> and they are aggressive, you know, to, to, to give some examples, you know, we work with employees who are having their wages garnished. The government can come in and take 15% of your paycheck to pay down your student loan. Uh, we just uh, started a partnership with AARP for their members. And one of the reasons why is we see now the government coming in um, and taking social security checks from people for their student loans. Uh, you, they can take your tax refund. All those things are happen, happen when you fall into default on your student loans, which generally takes means you haven't made a payment for 270 days and you get transferred from your servicer over to a debt collector. And you, it becomes very difficult. Uh, there are ways to get out of default. We help people get out of default you know, all the time, um, but it is more difficult and you really want to avoid that. There are other, again, the government provides all kinds of supports to help people who are maybe undergoing financial strain. So I mentioned income-driven repayment. That can lower your payment as low as $0. We actually did a program. Uh, we launched a, a site called crisishelp.buysavvy.com where people who lost their job uh, could come on and uh, file an income-driven repayment application and get a $0 payment for all for free 
uh, through the site because that that is a constituency we and we really want to help, particularly during the pandemic. There are things like deferments and forbearance um, where you can basically pause your student loans uh, for various reasons. Sometimes those you'll you'll accrue interest during those, so there's there's a downside to it. But again, better than generally speaking, better than going into default. And so, yeah, there are there are options for people, um, and you can you can ask your servicer, you know, who you pay for information about options. If you don't think you can afford your payment, you can go to the government. Um, they have information. Um, obviously, Savvy has tools and resources that can help people in those situations. But particularly right now, um, with all the cha- challenges of the pandemic, it's important for people to have you know all the information they can on on their options. So Aaron, we are in the home stretch. Just a few more questions. Uh, and I want to take a quick pause for any of our, our listeners who are interested in the professional development credit uh, that can be earned by listening to this episode. The code that you are looking for is 22-CP5UD. Again, that's the number two, the number two dash C is in Charlie, P is in Papa, the number five, U is in uniform, and D is in Delta. All right. Uh, so next question. Uh, so we, we've talked a lot about uh, the, the various kind of repayment issues or repayment uh, methods that one can use, but to kind of prevent us from being in that situation. And, and I think I maybe gave one of those examples for me, I chose to be a resident assistant, but what are some of the other things that students can do to minimize the amount of student loans that they need for college? Yeah, there's a few different, few different ways. Um, obviously, choosing the school that you go to and the type of degree you get is, is maybe the most important first step. You know, there is no one size fits all approach to education. There's people who are incredibly successful who go all different routes um, from community college to public universities to private universities. And so just I, I think being very smart, uh, being sort of very thoughtful about what you're looking to achieve and what the uh, what the cost implications of that are uh, and having a plan for that is, is sort of step one. Once you've decided on a path, you know, there are scholarships that are available. There's financial aid. You know, you should do the FAFSA. You should figure out what you're eligible for from the government. Um, sometimes schools have additional aid that they can provide. You mentioned like there's things like work study where you can make some money that can help cover cover your costs. Those are really important. I think a lot about grad school. One of the fastest areas of growth in student debt is people taking on the huge amounts of debt for grad school. And you think about how expensive grad school is, even like $50,000 a year plus for grad school. That's where you start to see those really high debt levels. And it is true that people increasingly feel like they need that grad school to get ahead. And But just being really thoughtful about, about that path. And if, for example, I am a big fan of doing internships or um, taking jobs that give you a sense. If you want to be a lawyer, you know, get a sense of what it means to be a lawyer before you spend 100000 plus on a law degree. Sure. And uh, I say that as someone who got a law degree and never practiced law, but has the debt (laughs) and uh, just trying to be really thoughtful uh, about that. And then on the flip side, understanding that while public service 
can often pay less, like working in the government, working for a college or a hospital, sometimes can pay less. There is this forgiveness component. So take that into account when you're thinking about, you know, what kind of path is, is there forgiveness? Are there benefits to the type of employer uh, that you might work for that would make going to college uh, or going to get that extra education make sense financially? So as we're starting to wrap up here, I want to give you the opportunity, Aaron, to kind of give yourself and Savvy a little plug. Uh, So I wanted to see if you can say a little bit more about what Savvy does and what projects, work, initiatives you're currently working on. Sure. So Savvy is a student loan uh, benefit startup. So we offer a comprehensive platform to employers so that they can offer a student loan benefit to all of their employees. It starts with that education piece. Our platform lets people enter their loan information, enter information about themselves and see all their options all for free. Uh, And then we'll actually help you with all the paperwork. We've digitized the whole process. You can talk to an expert one-on-one. If your employer is interested in the employer contribution, Uh, or offering student loan refi. We have that as well. So it really is that comprehensive kind of student loan benefit solution. And for many employers, it's the first time they've ever offered a student loan benefit. And uh, they find that it's one of the the most exciting new benefits. It's, It's one of the benefits that gets the most engagement from employees at all ages and all sort of levels in the company. You'd be surprised how many people in your company have student loan debt and not just assume that it's the, you know, the recent college grads really is affecting everyone at this point. So that's, you know, that's a little bit how we work. We believe really strongly in the education piece. Oftentimes savvy is part of a broader financial wellness push at a company. We're the sort of financial wellness solution around student loans. And so we'll do webinars and workshops Uh, and provide all kinds of educational content so that people can have help in figuring out how to repay, so that they can figure out smart ways to avoid getting into debt in the first place. And yeah, we're we're, we're your advocate for you through that process. So if the government changes the rules or adds a new program, you know, we're there to alert you. And as an HR professional, we're there to alert you about how those changes could impact your employees. Um, So we help keep our employers well-informed about what's happening as well. Awesome. And as we're closing out here today, we are going to ask if you have any final thoughts and pieces of advice that you like to give to students or in emerging professionals who are really anybody who's going to be listening to this podcast. You know, the, the final thing I'd just say is we really, this is really a unique moment on student loans with payments being paused for over a year and now set to resume this fall. We've never had anything like that before. And if you just think about the employees out there who maybe have put aside that student loan payment, haven't been making payments, been moving on to other things, who all of a sudden are going to have to start paying $500 a month, $1,000 a month starting in October, I think it's really important for employers to try to get ahead of that and to try to 
inform and alert their employees about what's about to happen. Because we don't want anyone to fall into default. We don't want anyone to fall behind, particularly when we know there are options available that can help them get on track with their student loans. So just really, I want to emphasize the urgency of helping employees figure out their student loans now um, when we have this pause and before uh, payments resume this fall. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us and providing us with tips, knowledge, and resources to combat student debt. I consider myself to be relatively knowledgeable when it comes to the subject matter, but even even today, I'm still walking away with some nuggets and things that I did not know. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Aaron. And so with that, we're going to bring this episode of Career Compass to a close. We'd like to thank SHRM and the SHRM Foundation for providing us with this platform. But most importantly, we'd like to thank all of you for joining us and hope you stay with us throughout the season as we discuss more topics like this episode. For more exclusive content, resources, and tools to help you succeed in your career, consider joining SHRM as a student member. You can visit us at sherm.org forward slash students to learn more about being a part of a community of over 300,000 HR and business leaders who impact the lives of over 115 million employees worldwide. And if you liked what you heard today, we'd love your subscription. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have a topic you think we should cover or have a guest we should bring on the show, we'd love to hear it. Email us at careercompasspodcast at sherm.org. Lastly, are you looking for more work or career-related podcasts? Check out All Things Work and Honest HR at sherm.org forward slash podcast. Thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Career Compass.